Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Work in Progress, the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome. I am your host Tia Hama and today we are going to be discussing email organization and how that affects your productivity. I'm here with Stuart Snooks. Stuart, how are you? Hello everyone. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, We've worked quite hard to get to this point. (laughs) Um, So you've had a very interesting professional life. So before we start, For those who don't know you, do you mind explaining sort of who you are and what it is you do and how you ended up here? Yes, sure. So I help those who are struggling to keep up with email and the workload that it delivers. And I'm available as a speaker, presenter, trainer, coach, consultant. Uh, But I started in the wine industry when I first left school. Oh, wow. Okay, working restaurant, retail, wholesale, travelled overseas, uh, picked grapes and... uh, Uh, After a decade of that, I'd always wanted to combine wine and education, wine Mm. and travel. So I thought, I'll get inside travel and see how that works, and then I can pull these together. Yeah. Uh, Travel was a little bit disillusioning, and I came back to the wine trade, and I just got married. So I knew I didn't want to work uh, restaurant hours. I didn't want to get Mm. stuck in a a bottle shop. So I was being choosy, and there was an opportunity popped up to work with a time management company uh, who had the organiser ring binder-style complex diary systems. Uh, and a time management program that went along with it. And I thought, yeah, I'll do this for a year or two and maybe I'll become a specialist to the wine trade. And maybe one day I will. It's just gone on for 25, 26 years now. <laughs> uh, yeah, wow. And 17 years ago is where I branched out to specialising in the email aspects of productivity. Mm. So many clients were coming to me and saying, Stuart, our biggest time management problem is this email. Have you got something specifically for email? And that's when I spent a year intensively researching what's best practice here Mm. and developing programs to suit. And that's just rolled on. I never thought it would last 17 years. We thought email was dead five, 10 years ago, but Mm. it's uh, it's alive and well. It's like a cockroach. (laughs) Definitely. Email lives through everything and it's become such an essential part of our life. Sort of no matter how advanced technology gets, I feel like you always need email. And it's just always something that since it's a, like, it's sort of, sort of, um, what do you call it? Emergence into the world. It's been such a crucial part of just professional life and personal life. Yeah, it, I think of it as the Swiss army knife. It's really useful for a whole lot of things. It's not particularly good at any one function, but it's, it's good at a lot of things. And it's, great, <laughs> it's a great default. For, Definitely. Uh, Awesome. So we'll get into email um, organization in just a minute. But for now, we're going to do a little segment called Get to Know the Guests. So get to know Stuart Snooks. Um, So this is essentially where we just ask you some questions, Stuart, in terms of how um, the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So I'm just going to ask you just like five questions and feel free to answer them as you will. Perfect. Okay. So the first question is, 
What is a recent book you've been reading? Well, I'm usually reading a few at a time. So two immediately come to mind. One is The First Two Hours by one of my colleagues, Donna McGeorge, a terrific book. Yes, we had Donna. She was so wonderful. Isn't she a live wire? She's beautiful. She's absolutely live wire. And a brilliant <laughs> book. I read it and I made pencil notes all throughout it. It's just it just hits the highlights all the way through. It's a terrific book. Oh, perfect. Uh, and then the other one that comes to mind is something I keep going back to uh, is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Mm, yeah, um, great book. I think I was one of the first to grab that book in Australia. And, in fact, he came out and spoke at a group that I'm involved with called Thought Leaders. Mm. And uh, it was it was great to, to meet him uh, in the flesh as well. That's incredible. Oh, you got to meet him. That's amazing. Yes. Uh, yeah, both sound like really great books. And yeah, I know Atomic Habits is an incredible book. Um, I've had so many friends who've read it and they've just, many of the podcast hosts here have also read it. So it is a really great book. Um, but I'd love to read Donna's. She was such a beautiful guest. We we loved having her on here. She's a good, yes. good Gold Coast girl. Yes. All right. So second question is, uh, what is a movie you would recommend well, uh, Ford versus Ferrari, been a male and, and been into motorsport. Uh, Ford versus <laughs> yeah. Ferrari, my brother and I went and saw it at the cinema. Mm. And I think I've oh, watched it five or six times on my own, you know, at home afterwards. Whenever I'm sort of at a loose end for something to watch, and I watch Ford versus Ferrari, there's just uh, little vignettes in that film that are just terrific. And um, yeah. so if people haven't watched that, as long as they're not allergic to cars, I suggest they don't watch that. <laughs> no, yeah, it's definitely particularly given that it's based on a, a true story you know so it's got it's got some real life um reality to it yeah exactly i went to go see it at the cinemas when it came out as well with a friend and oh it was just stunning such a yes. gorgeous movie and um george clooney and matt damon i'm like 99 percent sure that's the guys who are in it um so yeah if you don't go see it for the cars go and see it for the actors because it's just it's just a gorgeous movie yeah, i love really the great. two british actors they were just terrific um the yeah, wife, they, they, were, they were great. Yeah, they were. So third question, uh, what is your favourite podcast? You are not obliged to say ours, just for preference. <laughs> well, oh, then I'll say it's mine. Uh, because, <laughs> I, because I run it every week, it's always top of mind. My doctor email uh, Q&A forum, it's a weekly forum for free for an hour every week. And I love that. People come in and, and we're buzzing with ideas and questions and show and tell and um because of that, it's always top of mind. I'm always thinking of things that I can add to it, guests that I can invite. Um, so that would That's be gorgeous. my favourite What's that podcast. one called? Dr. Ema. Dr. Unfortunately, Ema. it's run almost consistently for two and a half years and I just ran the last one in the current series uh, two days ago. I'm, I'm having a break for July, having a winter hiatus, mm. but we'll bring right. it back again in August and revamp it and refresh it. Awesome. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Where can people listen to that one? Well, on my website, there's a, a, a tab that um, shows um, uh, Dr. Email and people can register for that uh, and then okay. they get um, the Zoom link and it's every week's Q&A. Drop in when you can, stay for as long as you can. I treat it as a bit of a, a um, sort of a lunch and learn. It's, it's aimed for 1230 nice. Eastern Seaboard of Australia. Yep. So people, and many of them come and have their screen off because they're eating lunch. <laughs> yes. They, they, my, a few of my regulars have learned. I'll wait for them to take a mouthful, then I'll ask them a question. And uh, and I tell all my dad jokes and, and we have a lot of fun. <laughs> it started off really when COVID kicked in. Yeah. And 
I thought, how can I help my audience through this time? And so I ran a, a free, and it became a bit of a therapy session there for the first six weeks <laughs> while everyone was trying to adjust to uh, to COVID, and then it settled into a um, you know a great um, Q and A around managing email and the things associated with uh, with with the email parts of everyday working roles. Gorgeous. Yeah, that's lovely. Do you have a dad joke for us? I love a good dad joke, honestly. Oh, a good dad joke. Uh, yes. One of the very first things I get people to do when I'm training an email is get the calendar to come up first when you open up Outlook for Outlook users. Mm. By default, inbox opens. And inbox, just immediately you're overwhelmed and there is just so much screaming for your attention. But when you open up the <laughs> yeah. calendar, as I say to people, whose agenda and priorities are you looking at when you look at the calendar? Mine. When you're looking at the inbox, everybody else's agenda. <laughs> And how often do you start in other people's agendas and it's half an hour, half a morning, half a day before you switch to the calendar and work out, now what am I supposed to be doing today? Mm. So I get people to make the calendar come up by default because as I say to people, the calendar is a much better outlook on your day uh, than the inbox. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, definitely. I do wish the calendar came up um, you automatically. Can instead. Yeah, you, can, you can. Okay, you can. you'll have to show me how to do that later because I, yeah, I end up having to open two separate tabs to be able to have them yes. and sort of not have to jump between the two. But anyway, we'll get into email stuff later. Um, the fourth question is, who is your famous role model if you have one? Oh, there's such a lot to choose from. And I suppose the one that comes to mind is, is Sally, Chesley Sullenberger, the pilot who, uh, who landed Oh yeah, on the, the Hudson landing. River. Yeah, it wasn't a crash landing. It was a it was a, a forced water landing, and it's just wonderful to see that diligence and that effort uh, that was under the surface that no one knew about, and suddenly all of that that faithful service and so on was was shown for the world to see. Uh, you know, it was really good to see a, a good man um, with years and years and years of experience, not just get some accolades, but he saved lives. You know, mm. he, he made a difference in a lot of people's world and not just those who are on the flight but their their family, the extended family and the kids and grandkids that they wouldn't have had yet. I mean, yeah. it's a profound influence. Think of the opposite when the Concorde, the last Concorde went down and, and it just wiped out thousands. I think I worked it out, 1,200 years worth of human living. Ooh, um, yeah, wow. And, and, and Sully was able to do the opposite. Mm. Was, I believe uh, they yeah. made a movie about him, didn't they? Tom Hanks, yeah, Tom Hanks. Yeah, Sally. yeah. He's, he's yeah, Sally. Yeah, oh, great stuff. Okay, and our... Watched that a few times as well. <laughs> I don't doubt that. And our fifth and final question is, um, what is a course you have completed? doesn't have to be recently, but what's a course that you've completed? Oh, the one I'm thinking of, uh, which you never really complete, it's an ongoing continual learning thing is, is my Thought Leaders Business School. I have a whole lot of colleagues who are like mm. myself, subject matter experts, and we gather together uh, to work out how do we, we make this commercially viable? How do we continually, yeah. uh, how do we continually improve what we're doing and offering? Uh, and I think the byline is how, how to make clever people commercially smart. So it's, it's a great course. Interesting. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's always ongoing. Oh, awesome. Wonderful. So that wraps up our Get to Know You session. Um, and we're going to jump into the the interview stuff, the people that are the What am I trying to say? The thing that everybody's here for. There we go. <laughs> it's, it's been a long day. Um, all right. So as I already mentioned today, we're discussing email organization and productivity. Now, 
Emails are a part of everyone's life. It's either a part of your daily routine to check your emails because you're a parent or you're a professional checking work emails or you're both. Um, so for our listeners, Stuart, how would you define productivity? Uh, so bigger picture productivity. I, I suppose yeah. a simple definition would be the ratio of outputs for any given input. You know, how productive yeah. are you? So in the workplace... Uh, this is the, the output of results generated by an individual or by a team, usually over a specific period of time. Um, but that's been changing over the years uh, since I've been working in productivity, especially with COVID kicking in. Mm. It was once a case that as individuals, we were paid for our time. We turn up, clock on, we spend time in the workplace, whether productive or not, <laughs> clock off and we get paid. But then we've moved to being paid for our efforts and we see things like productivity bonuses. Um, for achieving set KPIs. Uh, And so there's an incentive to be productive in the workplace. And then we're moving into an era of being paid not for our our time or for efforts, but for our results. Mm. And so our task is to achieve a specific result or outcome. And within reason, however long that takes us, is up to us. And so if we're highly productive, uh, we can spend a minimum of time doing it and we free up time for other things in life that we'd like to do. So productivity is all about inputs versus outputs over a period of time. So what would you say are the main challenges that can hinder a person's um, personal productivity? Yeah, I think it starts with awareness. If you ask people what are the things that get in the way of you being productive and then you read between the lines of what they're saying, most people, even, even CEOs, will often attribute their lack of productivity to other people or things that they think are outside mm. their control. Yeah. What I found is once you show people a range of productivity skills and strategies, they soon realise there's a lot more that they can control that they didn't realise they could or they hadn't made the, the choice, I'm going to get control of that. And the most common complaints are often phone calls, meetings, emails and the interruptions that they cause, and yet they have some of the easiest things to get control of. <laughs> yeah. So just as important as these external distractions, though, are our own internal distractions Mm. Uh, they can be very hard to control so we now absorb so many messages data information community so much stuff and it lodges in the subconscious part of the mind and then it pops back up and reminds us of things you've probably had this yourself you've woken up at two o'clock in the morning and remembered something or (laughs) all the time as soon as you get into what i call a reflective or relaxed state of mind when you're walking you're driving you're sleeping things pop up like bubbles in soup out of your subconscious mind, and they become another major source of, of external, sorry, internal distraction. It's bad enough with the externals, but we have our own. And, and so a lot of these distractions and interruptions are the sort of things that show up in the low importance, high urgency quadrant in Stephen Covey's um, in, in classic important urgency matrix. Mm. And the problem is that these activities take up a lot of our time and our energy and attention, and then we have very little of that left for the activities that really matter, that are important but not urgent right now. And what we tend to do is we deal with the high importance, high urgency, because that's the crisis mode. We then move to other things that have an urgency around them, even though they're not that important. I'll, I'll just check my social media or I'll just return that phone call from my friend. You know, And then we run out of time for the stuff that have high importance but aren't urgent until they start to become urgent. Yeah. And now we're constantly in crisis mode. Um, so does that, does that sort of make sense? Yeah, no, it or, does. What, it's so what was your question? What are the challenges here? <laughs> yeah, what are the, the main challenges that can hinder an individual's personal productivity? And I think you've 
you summed it up quite well in saying that there are so many different things. It, like, you know, there are your external, there are your internal, and with all of those combined, they can really draw back on your personal productivity. And there is so much that is attributed to our personal productivity. And one of those things is emails. <laughs> As somebody whose main form of communication with professionals, with colleagues, um, this sort of career-based things, my main form of communication with those people is email. It's very rarely is it something else. I think that's because we've uh, we've attributed it to being professional and sending somebody an email or, you know, it's the, the modern-day letter, it's the more formal, um, you know, more appropriate way of communicating with people. How do you think email organisation influences an individual's personal productivity? So this, when you say email organisation, you mean my organisation of my email, you mean? Yes. Yeah, so in individuals. Sure. Well, these days, as you were saying, email is central to almost everything we do in a working role these days. Uh, and that has, like dropping a stone into a pond, has a ripple effect on everything else that's going on, both at work and non-work, because we're often doing work email before hours, during our breaks, after hours, on weekends. So it has a ripple effect that, that impacts all of our life. It's almost as important an advent as the as the wheel. Email has, as um, Carl Newport mentions this in a book he wrote, A World Without Email, that email has not just added to our work volumes, it has changed the way that we work, completely changed yeah, the way definitely. that we work. Um, so we are now constantly receiving new messages. We're looking at them, sifting, sorting, prioritising them and trying to do some of the work that they deliver all at the same time. And our human brain is not wired up well for that. Yeah. And I, I talk a lot to people about separating these two types of mindsets. You're sifting, sorting, prioritising, and then you're actually doing, taking action. Uh, it's very hard to do it all at once. And Cal talks about uh, the hyperactive hive mind, which is uh, continual ongoing conversations uh, from unscheduled uh, messages coming in. And I also add uninvited, unexpected, unwanted, <laughs> but unscheduled. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that come in through electronic channels and email is the predominant one of those. It isn't the only one. Of course, we've got social media and, and a range of other mm. tools, but email is the, the dominant one. So we're having these constant conversations uh, all the time. And it creates this hyperactive hive mind. I think a lot of people would recognise how hard it is to settle down when you have a day off, to settle into a three-week holiday. It takes you nearly a week just to get settled, to get out of this, Definitely. this mindset um, that's been generated by email and, and the volumes and the demands that it has uh, Put upon us, and increasingly so over the years. You know, I say to people sometimes, "Who remembers getting their first email? You know, who was? Who, oh, this is great! I got an email. You know, it was a novelty." I say, "Okay, now who's over it?" <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like trying to drink from a yeah. fire hose now. Yeah, uh, no, so definitely. Because it's so central to our work, if we don't have good, strong control of it, um, I think of it like the heart in the body. Everything goes through the heart. Everything goes through the inbox, and if that's flowing well, you're healthy. Messages are getting out to the, the parts of the body that need to. But if, if there's blockages, if there's sluggishness, you know, if we have a heart attack or a stroke at the inbox level, uh, it has a, a huge impact on our personal productivity. There's quite a number of clients I've worked with recently who said what they've learned about being effective with their email productivity is spilled over into things outside of email as well uh, because the same basic principles apply. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think 
you've touched on an interesting point there in terms of having that spill over and it affecting other aspects of your life because like you said it is really hard to sort of when you're on holiday and when you're on time off you know like I I don't work every day like on other days I'm doing um things for other people but I still have this sort of like urge to just be like oh I'll just I'll just check it I'll, I'll just make sure I'll just in case somebody needs something and in case you know something happens yes. um I need to check it. And it really affects, it does affect your productivity. You're not, you know, using your time um, properly and product, like productively. And yeah, it's important to sort of be able to draw those boundaries, especially, which I think is, yes, very important when it comes to emails. <laughs> well, I wrote a white paper on the seven impacts of email overload, email and information overload. Mm. And um, obviously there's a cost of time, but it comes down to things like uh, mental health and wellbeing. Mm. Uh, because it affects us. Uh, it also has an impact on our mood, our emotional well-being. Yeah. Uh, our, 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 um, I've written a recent one on the psychological impact of email overload uh, and our work-life balance, our relationships. We just don't have time to spend with the people we want doing the things that we want or not as much time as we like. And even when, if we do have time, we are not always there fully mentally. Um, yeah. So one of the reasons that email has become so um, addictive is that new messages, whether it's Facebook, whether it's you know, whatever's new, there's a little part of our brain that gets a little dopamine hit. And we can, and, you know, it's exciting. Is it, what's my new message? Oh, it's disappointing. <laughs> and we keep checking for new messages, still expecting like we won the lottery. And we keep getting disappointed, but there's something in our wiring that gives us that little dopamine hit, which is addictive. And, and we become addicted to it. And it's really hard to turn that off, yeah. even when you're on holidays. Yeah, definitely. It is quite difficult. And yeah, like you said, when we sort of started with emails, I remember when I got my first email account when I was, I think I was 13 and you got like an email, like maybe like once every two weeks <laughs> and it was from like your grandmother or something like that, who had also figured out how to use her emails. Um, but now I get like 15,000 a day and it's ridiculous and it's really overwhelming. So. For the people who, um, I'm going to say this is majority of people, for the people who struggle with a very full inbox, for example, my mother, I, lo I love her to death, but she has very, I don't want to say the number because it's too many and she'll kill me for it. It's a lot of emails. It's a lot of emails that she has not, that she has not read at all. What advice do you have for people whose inboxes have just, they've gotten past the 20,000 mark like they're they're hitting big numbers here in terms of unread emails what advice do you have for those people who want to just because my mom's like I'm just going to start a new email account like I can't do this anymore yeah. it's ridiculous yes well that's one of the methods you declare bankruptcy and you start again yeah um, <laughs> now the record number I've seen physically with my eyes is 90,000 oh wow uh, I've seen okay. a few 70s and 80s and I've heard of someone who had 125 I worked with the EA and her boss had 125,000. And that's not um, uh, un unusual these days given the volumes coming in each day. In yeah. Terms of, um, I say to people, who uses folders? So uh, you have email coming in and when you deal with it, you move it out into some sort of folder structure. Who's got folders and subfolders and sub subfolders and sub 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 and sub, -sub <laughs> <laughs> People have created this complex folder hierarchy, which they have to scroll mm. up and down whenever they want to put an email out of the inbox into it and store it somewhere. 
A lot of people have given up on that and said, too hard. I'm just going to leave everything in the inbox. And a lot of senior executives do this, firstly, because the volume they're getting, and secondly, because um, uh, they just don't have time to do that, what I call the housekeeping. It's a chore yeah. filing things away. But if I leave it in the inbox, I know where everything is. So I've got peace of mind, I know where it is, and it's easy to find in the sense that there's only one place to go. Uh, and for years I've been saying that's a great principle, but it's just not the best place. We should really separate complete from incomplete. What are the things that I still need to take action on from the things that are finished with? And when they're all in together, we have to do that mentally every time we're looking at it. Yeah. So I have a couple of approaches for that. If there's a, if you want to, we can clean that up. We, we just move it all out of there into a single folder, which I call filing cabinet. Some people call it done, archived, finished, completed, whatever term they want, and start again at zero. But the problem, of course, is that unless you change your process, it's going to fill up again sooner or later. Uh, the other approach is to say, just, just leave everything in the inbox. That's fine. Let's find a way to tease out the ones that need attention. And yep. so I will train people in how to, uh, in Outlook, for example, use flags. When you flag something in Outlook, there's a search folder that will identify everything that's got a flag on it. And so yeah, that, I do that too. That then, becomes, that then becomes your action folder. It stays in the inbox. It is now highlighted in another folder. When you deal with it in that other folder, you click the flag, it turns to a tick. It disappears out of that folder. It's still in the inbox and the flag becomes a tick in the inbox so you know you've done it. I think of it a bit like the story, like you and I are standing in the river and all the water is coming down the river, has to get through us to flow. And if we're not processing it, it banks up and becomes a lake. So you've got 20,000 you know, pieces of, of water, if you like, in your lake. And what <laughs> I'm saying to people is get out of the river, get out of the flow, stand on the bank and just, you know, with a fishing hook or a line, whatever, just flag the ones or hook the ones that want that need your attention. Get them on the, on the bank with you, deal with them, and then throw them back into the lake when you're finished with them sort of thing. Yeah. And so I show people how you can have a big inbox and leave everything in the inbox, use that as your filing cabinet, but how do you identify the ones that are incomplete that need some action and put them in a place where you can narrow your focus like blinkers on a racehorse down to just those ones that need your attention. Then I show them how to set that up folder up so that it has a column where you can type in what's my next action because you've read the email, you've worked out what needs to be done, you can't do it now, so you flag it and put it aside to do it later. Then you've got to go back and read it again to work it all out again. So don't waste that first <laughs> read. Capture yeah. Give it a priority, high, medium, or low. Type in what's your next action and make sure that next action is written with the first word as your doing word. Read, write, review, prepare, update. Because if you type, say, XYZ project, that's fine. You understand that right now. But in two minutes, two hours, two days, two weeks, you go, what's that about? No, yep. update spreadsheet for XYZ project would be a much better way to write your next action. And then here's the, here's the kicker. I get them to add a column where you can say, when am I going to do that? Today, tomorrow, next week? first of September, and yeah. then it turns that um, action folder into almost like a dated to-do list. And you haven't wasted all the time you spent reading it the first occasion. You've captured your next action and when you're going to get back to it. And so this system stores what you need, where you need it, but only brings it back for your attention when you need it. And what I've found over the last three years that I've been teaching this process is people tell me it clears up an enormous amount of headspace for them. Because otherwise, every Definitely. time you look at the screen, you're doing that to every email. You're sifting, sorting, pride. You're trying to keep track of it. And mentally, it's just enormously draining trying to keep track of it, particularly as the volumes increase. 
So mm. what we do is capture the results of the hard work you've already done the first time you've read it and store it in the appropriate place till the appropriate time. Yeah. And it just makes it – well, I, I call my program Revolutionizer Inbox because that's what it has done. It has revolutionized people's experience of the inbox now. And that clearing up a headspace is the, is the big, uh, very difficult to measure, but very, very tangible benefit. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it does make such a difference and it can be hard to notice, but in retrospect, you do kind of notice it because I remember I, I worked at a law firm a while ago and um, our, our managing partner, she would never, you could never have like a full inbox. Like she just, it was not, like it was just not a thing. <laughs> um, she was very, very, and obviously, you know, in a law firm, you have to be on top of these things. So there wasn't, there wasn't time and there wasn't space for you to have to sit there and mentally figure it out. So that we had flags and files and all that kind of thing. And it did make such a difference because you worked so much more productively. You got things done faster. You knew what things meant to you <laughs> um, and all that kind of thing. And actually, knowing what the content of the emails were, et cetera. So according to psychologists, the status of your email inbox and how you clean it or do not clean it says a lot about your personality. Sorry, mum. What, in your opinion, are the three sort of first impressions you get from looking through someone's inbox? What, like, what do you look at and what can you immediately go, okay, this is, this is where our problem is. Sure. I do a lot of these, um, looking at people's inboxes these days since COVID, because um, previously I ran live training workshops uh, and I just get to look over someone's shoulder in a workshop for 20 seconds, two minutes at a time. But now my screen is their screen and I can see what's really going on. Uh, and so the great advantage of COVID is that my program, instead of being one day intensive in a workshop with limited ability to help people implement, it's now an online workshop, one hour to 90 minutes once a week. So spaced repetition uh, with recordings uh, and what's been particularly useful in that is that I offer one-on-one coaching and it's in that one-on-one that I really see what's going on with people's um, uh, behaviours, their, their email behaviours uh, and from my experience the first three things or impressions I get is how reactive they are to email. Uh, the second one is what degree of control do they have over that inbox uh, and then how well do they organise uh, their email and particularly their storage of email and information. So these are the three key areas that I help people to address. We've got to get control of when we're doing email and when we're not, instead of trying yeah. to constantly do it all the time. We've got to get control of when. I call it the WWW. Secondly, what? What is your process? As you were saying when you work with the law, you had a process, you had a system, you had a methodology. And the key is to make it consistent. Because when it's consistent, you'll notice patterns and trends that you can now uh, either shortcut or automate or leverage or or eliminate if it's unnecessary. And then the third of the W's is where. Where are people storing emails when they need to work on them, but then when they've finished with them? And so they're the first three things I go looking for. Are they controlling when they look at email? Are they doing it in a structured way or unstructured? Are they giving it full attention or partial attention? Um, what degree of control do they have after they've done their work? How much are the, is the system helping them? How much are they having to carry around mentally uh, and constantly remember where they're up to with everything? And then how well have, have they stored email? Uh, yeah. You may have seen people, you know, complex folder hierarchies that are really hard to manage. <laughs> you know, you drag and drop 
into a folder system, you're bound to drop it in the wrong folder sooner or later. Oh, every time. <laughs> uh, and all of those things point to the state of their headspace. Um, mm. And yeah, so they're, they're the things I go looking for. Does that help? Does that answer? Yeah, no, yeah, that's so interesting. It's it's sort of <laughs> nice to know what people go looking for. Um, yeah, I think your, your inbox and sort of how you organize your emails definitely, um, yeah, is reflective on sort of who you are. And I feel like everybody's quite sort of diligent on how they organize their emails at the start. And then it sort of loses traction and you kind of don't end up being as organized because I used to shun my mother for having so many unread emails. And now I've got, I think, about like 15,000, close to 20,000 emails that have not been read. Um, And that's because they're all from just random companies and sort of places like clothing brands that yes. send me emails like every couple hours. It's yes. it's really insane. Would you recommend sort of going through and unsubscribing from people who send you emails all the time? Uh, when, when we look at the email inbox, we need to make one of four decisions. There's only one of four things we do with each email. The first one is delete it. Mm. Uh, the second one is deal with it straight away. And the rule of thumb there is if you can take the next action in two minutes or less, it's a whole lot quicker to do it right here, right now, than to put it off and have to come back to it later. Uh, The third one is delegate to somebody else. Somebody else might need to take the next action. And the fourth one is um, a lot of the time management guys I followed use the word defer. But what sort of things come to mind when you see or hear the word defer? Yeah, yeah, putting it off. Later. Yeah. It's not decisive at all. And I say, no, the word needs to be decide. I need to decide. And the three things I need to decide on is how important is this? What's the priority? High, medium, or low? What's my next action? Type that in. Capture it. You've done the thinking. Capture the thinking. Type in the next action. And when am I going to come back to it? I can't do it now. When am I going to come back to it? Is it today? Later today? Is it tomorrow? Next week? Next month? Next year? And capture those uh, set the tool up so you can capture those. So you're making one of those four decisions. Now, when you do that consistently, you'll notice patterns and trends. And I, I keep getting these fashion ones and I keep deleting them. Why don't I do one of three things? Keep manually deleting them. I'm happy to have a quick look and then delete. Or maybe uh, I want to unsubscribe completely and never get them again. But what I teach people to do, it's probably something that you do want to keep getting, but you don't want to keep getting interrupted by it. Yes. So in Outlook, for example, I talk about you can right-click and add to your junk folder. What that effectively does is sets up a rule that it goes to the junk folder. This one plus any other that come in from that email address in future. And then I teach people, use the junk folder as your reading folder. So filter out of the inbox all of those subscriptions, uh, updates, reports, things that you never have to take action on and you never have to answer. You do want to read them, but you don't have to action or answer. So, they be, so your inbox becomes a bit more concentrated as a, an action-oriented place and all your reading stuff can go somewhere else. Now, the advantage of sending it to the junk folder instead of setting up your own separate reading folder is that when they get to four weeks old, it automatically deletes them. Oh, interesting. Because if you haven't read it in four weeks, you probably never will, or it'll yeah. be so old now that it's not really all that useful to you. And a lot of subscriptions we get are weekly or, or monthly. So this month will come in, next month will get deleted. And so you just, what I teach people to do is is process your inbox, do the emails you need to do today, then go and check your your junk folder or your reading folder, have a quick scan. And this separates your mindsets. You see, when we are 
processing the inbox, I call it triage, we're, we're prioritising, we're trying to sift and sort the stuff. Let's do that. Stop doing that. Let's go to today's. Now, these are the things I need to take action on. So the first activity is an active mindset, shallow thinking, fast decision making. Mm. Now that I'm looking at that small percentage of email, and it's about 35 to 37% of email, we need to come back to a second time. We can't deal with it the first time we look at it. Now you yep. get into a deeper level of concentration that's going to take longer. That's a different mindset. And then the third mindset is you flick across to your reading folder and now you're in a passive mindset. You're not actually looking to take action or do anything. It's almost like you've got your arms folded and you just, okay, what else can going on <laughs> in my world? And you're just yep. really there in a passive mindset. 95% of those, you'll just flick past the subject line and won't look at it. Occasionally, you'll find, oh, I want to have a look at the specials because, in fact, I am looking to, in that corner, I'm glad I got that newsletter and I didn't unsubscribe because I actually need to book a flight to Sydney coming up. So, And you can drop in to detail on that occasion when you might want to. So we separate those three different mindsets, active, shallow, active, deep, passive, and do them separately. Okay, interesting. And that's a great way to filter out of the inbox all the stuff that is not unimportant, but it doesn't need an action, doesn't need a response. It only needs reading. And then that becomes your reading when you do it with a passive mindset. Once a day, once a week, as often as you need to to keep up with that. Yeah. So you mentioned um, having uh, making certain folders and files to move your emails into. So Scott Hanselman is the program manager at Microsoft and he uses uh, filters to send, like you said, incoming emails into three different inboxes, into three different folders so that he can further organize these. Do you think, however, there is a limit on how many separate folders and files you should be filtering your emails into? So when we talk about filtering email, it means re, um, re reallocating them into folders before I've even seen them. I assume that's what he's saying. So effectively what you're doing is creating three inboxes or five inboxes. So, so you've got enough problems with one, let alone having three or five. So I, I, it's called the stack method, where you allocate to folders based on the sort of action that's needed. These I need to deal with, these are to do with my calendar, these are things I need to uh, take some action on and then delegate to someone else. This is for reading, but it, it creates multiple folders. I don't think that's the best way to handle it. I would rather have everything come in the inbox and learn to make good 4D process and then begin to use tools of automation to filter them out after I've made the decision. Mm, and then okay. they can go to other folders when I've finished with them. Yep. Even then, I talk about the smaller number of folders that you send them to, the quicker it is to make the decision which one they need to go to. Yep. Um, the average number of folders people have apparently is 37. Oh, good grief. <laughs> the average number of folders people have. I can't remember where that research came from. Well, Hicks Law says it's going to take me five times longer to decide which one it needs to go to before I even touch it. Just the decision-making oh, process is going to take five times longer. That's a lot more than I thought you were going to say. <laughs> yeah. And then, then, of course, I've got to move it there, which means I've got to drag it and then I've probably got to scroll to find it. Then I've got to drop it and make sure I drop it in the right place. Mm. So what I say to people is um, – the reason that we used folders was because search wasn't very strong many years ago, but in the last decade, search has increased exponentially. It's it's very powerful, but our skills in using it have not grown at all. We need, to <laughs> yes. learn, we need to learn how to use search properly. And then when you know how to use search well, it makes a whole lot of sense to just put everything in one folder and rely on search. 
because with a folder structure, every different person I've worked with, thousands of them over the years, every one of them's had a different folder structure. Everybody's yeah, wow. folder structure is unique because those folder names are just labels you and I give things. What I suggest to people, particularly in Outlook, is you can put categories on because categories are a label and they get stored in one location instead of multiple locations, which is what happens with multiple folders. They go to one folder, one location, but you can use labels to separate them within that location because you group that folder by categories. And the advantage is with Outlook categories, you can put two or three or five labels or categories on one email. So I get an email from Tia, that's to do with um, my platform um, and it's to do with, uh, it's external to my organisation uh, and she's in Melbourne as opposed to Sydney or whatever. So I can have three categories on there. So now I can find your email in three different ways. There's only one copy of it. I can find it in three different ways that you would never put into three different folders. Yeah. So the idea, I, I certainly disagree with filtering into different inboxes because then, you, then you're going to have to go to three different places to do it. Yeah. And then even if you're finished with it and it's going into a folder structure, I suggest that the smaller the number of folders, the quicker and easier it is to use and rely on search. As I say to people, you already use this principle. I say to people, who uses um, Google during the day? Everyone goes, oh, yeah, I use Google. I use Google. <laughs> How often do you yeah. go, oh, yeah, I'm on Google all the time? I say, what's Google? Everybody will go search engine, search engine, search engine. I go, it's not a search engine. It's a filing cabinet. Everything goes, everything can be found in that filing cabinet and it has a powerful search engine so you can find it. Yes. <laughs> Same principle. All my email goes into one simple folder and then I start using the power search to find it. So it's like Google for my email. Yes. No, that's great. Yeah. Learning how to um, search properly is something that I think we have just not exactly learned because I feel like we, we've, we've got the tech and it upgrades and it updates and we ourselves still don't know how to search. They teach you this in university, just how to research things, let alone yes. go through your own emails. They're like, do you guys actually know how to find stuff? Like, are you actually aware of how this actually works? Because this is the technology that you're supposed to know how to use. Um, so, yeah. Exactly. And as I, as I say to people, the, uh, you know, Microsoft and Google, they have teams of people improving that piece of software all the time. Every day mm. they are making it more complex, more powerful. How much time are we spending learning how to keep up with them? Yeah. <laughs> so search capacity has <laughs> increased enormously, but we have not even scratched the surface of getting there. And I show people in my programs just one or two things that change the whole game. For example, I'll type in Tia Harmer and it'll give me 5,000 results. Ah, oh, search is useless because it's searching everything. I haven't given it enough um, specifics. But if I go click the from button, I only want emails that came from Tia. Now I get 500. And when I think about it, it had an attachment. So I click the Have Attachments button. So now it finds the 12 that came from Tia that had attachments. And in fact, I think it came last month and I clicked last month. Now we're down to three. So learning how to use its search uh, tools and some of the Boolean search terms uh, can make an enormous difference. Once you know how to do that, it doesn't make sense to use your brain to find stuff. Tell your computer, go and find me this, this, and this based on this criteria and search high or wide, or you tell it how far and wide to go searching as well. And it takes the strain off having to, to keep maintaining a complex folder structure, <laughs> remembering where everything is. What did I call it? Where yeah. did I put it? No, it's one of two things computers do much better than human brains. Mm. Uh, the first one is it remembers the right thing at the right time. <laughs> if you tell it and get it to give you a reminder. And it's very good at, at searching for stuff. Just give it some good, accurate search terms and it'll go and find it. 
And mm. those are two activities that we should outsource from our brain and, and, and give it to um, give it to computers. Definitely, yeah. I think technology is supposed to make our lives easier. So as long as we learn how to use it, then that's exactly what it'll do. Um, so moving on, research shows that productivity at organisations can improve when um, email processing policies are put in place. So being able to um, balance email response time and task completion, etc. In your opinion, how often should email be used as a way to connect to someone versus um, over, te- over text or something like uh, Microsoft Teams or Slack? Um, and how would you link that to task productivity? Yeah, I suppose what you're touching on here is, is managing expectations around how we're using these tools. Mm-hmm. Most people are, are given the tool um, but not taught how to use it effectively. And what are the expectations? Uh, and unfortunately, this is something organisations have, have often not addressed. And the result is the onus then goes to the receiver of the messages. In the past, the volume and the speed of communications via letter or, or in the post was controlled pretty much by the sender. Yeah. Facts came along and added volumes and added speed, but the onus was still pretty much on the sender. But email has increased volumes and speed exponentially, and now the onus for managing these volumes falls to the to us as the receiver. So some of the latest research I've seen shows 11% of senders expect you to respond to their email within 15 minutes. <laughs> How does that make you feel as a receiver? Yeah, not great. <laughs> Lots of pressure. Yes. It's probably unrealistic and it's probably unfair. The same research says that 25% of receivers think they should respond within 15 minutes. There's this yeah, wow. mismatch of expectations between senders and receivers. And receivers feel guilty. Much more of them feel that they should respond quicker than senders are expecting of them. So we need to manage these expectations. And the sweet spot where both sender and receiver's um, expectations overlap seems to be around the 45 to 50-minute mark. Two-thirds, 66% of senders are happy to wait between an hour and a, and a day for a response. But only 40% of receivers think that that's acceptable. So firstly, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as receivers that's not really there. It's, um, it's what I call fear. Fear, <laughs> fear is an acronym. Yeah. False evidence appearing real. Ah, and so much okay. of our behaviour is fear-driven, false evidence that, that appears to be real. So you see, most, pe- most people are happy to wait for an answer as long as they know how long that wait will be and or how they can escalate an issue that does have an urgency or time sensitive around it. For example, if you send an email and don't get a quick enough response, what do you do next? Yeah, I text them or send another email. <laughs> well, that's usually what you don't do is you don't send another because if it didn't work the first time, what, what makes you think it's going to work the second time? You usually text or pick up the phone. True. We I switch mediums. Nagging. Because email is not the appropriate tool yeah. for time-sensitive messages. We've tried to force it to do that and we can make it work but at enormous cost to the receivers. They don't get much else done because they need to be available in case something comes in they need to respond to. So mentally they, they find it hard to focus on something else uh, and they put that pressure on themselves more than, than we put it on them. So when it comes to large teams and organisations, uh, some sort of agreed policy um, uh, needs to be in place so that people know the rules of the game and the structure. Uh, so that gives them peace of mind uh, and assurance that they, you know, that they can not 
have to be responsive to email. The institute comes in, get things done. They have permission to not answer email, to use that time to get stuff done. Um, Because without it, it's like playing a game of football, you know, Aussie rules in Melbourne. Imagine Aussie rules without any rules. (laughs) No boundaries, no goalposts, no umpires. Oh, goodness. Don't know what behaviours are acceptable or not. What's a high tackle? (laughs) It's just chaos. And that's the way we play the email game. Yeah. So we need to get some rules and boundaries in place with some structure. The game makes a whole lot more sense then. And then we know whether we're doing well or we're not. And, of course, like any game, there'd always be people who will infringe, but usually peer group pressure will keep people maintaining those standards once they have been talked about and agreed on and established. Yeah. Um, I talk about, um, before even email, the idea, the very first time management session I went to was a Fred Pye course. He talked about um, a thing called SRT, SRT, Strategic Reserved Time. I know I'm going to get interrupted today. I just don't know when, who, why, what it'll be about, how long it'll take, but I do know it's going to happen. And so what you can do is block out one or two times during the day, which you call strategic reserve times. That's when I'll get back to those things that I didn't know were going to happen today. And I do it in a a block of dedicated time. So that means I can focus on the things I need to. Other things pop up, one, two, three, five, and then I deal with those one, two, three, five in that dedicated block of time. I I had a client say, yeah, Stuart, we do that. We call it gam time. I said, really? Yeah, he said, watch this. It was, I was in Mildura. It's 11 o'clock. I'm in his office. It's got floor-to-ceiling windows, glass windows. And 11.30 came and everybody was up out of their seat and dashing around talking to each other and things were going on. Up until then, everyone was quiet. They were at their desk. They were getting stuff done. Yeah, wow. And he said, yeah, we call it gam time. I said, what's gam? Oh, got a minute. <laughs> it's all those got a minute conversations. Yeah that have an urgency because I just thought of it. So I, I, bug, I bug you because it's top of mind. So if we have an agreed time that we'll catch up and then some sort of tool that I can use to capture that idea so it doesn't have to be urgent, and an email is good, I can send off an email, get it off my plate, but you don't have to answer it until you know our agreed sort of strategic reserve time when you will sit down and, and start having this conversation. So it works for uh, physical conversations on the phone as well as visiting face-to-face and email. Why don't we have times when we do focus on all of those bits and pieces and then when we don't and get stuff done mm. and just getting teams and organisations to agree and it doesn't have to be rigid. I work with a, an organisation, a teacher's credit union and we talked about this idea of SRT. I worked with the sales and marketing team. I checked in with them three weeks later and they said, oh, this is fantastic. We're able to get our stuff done. Then we get together and catch up with all the bits and pieces that have been going on. In fact, we yeah. love it so much. We've set up one in the afternoon as well. beautiful but without it uh, as I say to people the the rule in most organisations is this this is the rule of thumb this is how it works anybody can interrupt anybody else about anything at any time that tends to be the default position and it's chaotic it's like Aussie rules with no rules let's get some structure (laughs) in place it won't work perfectly but let's get some times when we do make ourselves available to others times when we're not available because we're getting the stuff done I like the, um, the New Zealanders have got this movement over there called GST. Um, I thought it was get stuff done, but they they call it get shit done. Um, <laughs> you know, get stuff done. And you can't get stuff done if you're constantly interrupted by phone calls, people dropping in the door, or you're constantly responding to email. So for organisations, it's about uh, establishing some agreed protocols about how we're going to interact with each other and yeah. when and when is the important. Yeah. It's that when thing that's so important. Yeah, so that kind of leads me into my next question, which is where 
A lot of the time when people aren't being active or they're not being responsive, it's being perceived at, by colleagues as laziness. Um, so what tips do you have for employers and their employees who are struggling to maintain or implement email policies? Just just, just reword that for me too. Um, sort of, so like what um, tips or advice would you have for employees or employers who are struggling to implement these kind of email um, policies and the kind of things that you were talking about before and actually struggling to, to maintain them? Yes. I've often run a session, I run a workshop with leadership teams and then I'll talk to the leadership team. Okay, out of all of the stuff we've covered today, what are the things that have been most useful to you? We'll throw it up on a whiteboard and then I'll say, okay, pick three. What are the three things you want to implement as a policy and agree on as a behavioural change for your organisation? Uh, let's get those into place. I'll send you the how to implement them. Uh, and so you you teach people, this is what we're trying to do. This is the standard uh, and, and train people to that standard. You can't expect people to just know these things automatically. It's amazing how many senior managers are expected to be competent at managing email and are not. It's one of the yeah. things that we just think everybody should be good at, but it's not natural at all. All of the good time management strategies and techniques are nearly the opposite of human nature. So they take discipline, they take practice, they take effort. They don't come to us easily. So we need to train people uh, and, and give them time to get up to speed with them as well. I say this to some of my people now, I'm available for one-on-one -on -one coaching. Don't try and do it on your own. You're trying to ride a bike. Remember the first time you tried to ride a bike? <coughs> Fell over. <laughs> yeah. so someone picked you up, you know, someone held the seat, kept you balanced and held the steering and got you going until you could get, get going and get your balance yourself. And that's often the case with any new practice. And it's especially the case now with email because we've all been using email for a long time and we've got habits that we've formed over that time. And the longer we've been using those habits, the harder they are to change. Um, but to keep on doing the same things the same way and expect different results is a definition of <laughs> insanity. So if we, <laughs> yeah. we need to make some changes. So let's make them in areas that are best practice and let's make sure everybody you know, can, can achieve that minimum standard. Some will do it quickly. Some will need some, some guidance and some help. Um, but at the moment, it's pretty much anything goes because we haven't set the benchmark. We haven't established what the standards are. Yeah. Setting those standards is, yeah, yeah, the best sort of making sure that you know what's important and what's actually achievable and sort of keeping those priorities is, yeah, definitely important. All right. So that brings us into our next segment, which is about um, your personal practice and habits and debrief. Um, so, you know, the, the listeners and the audience like to know, what do the experts do? What are they, you know, they give us all this advice, but what do they actually do? What are they, what are they implementing? Um, so my first question is, uh, what is a practice that you do to improve your email productivity? Yeah, great. When you look at the screen, uh, as it's given to you by default, uh, and we'll use Outlook as the example, because that's the one I specialize in, it's chaotic. Uh, you've got to do a lot of scrolling up and down to find the one you want. We tend to cherry pick which one we want to look at instead of working through them methodically. That view doesn't let me know what's what have I got to do next, when have I got to do it. 
So I've got to make this up every time I'm looking at that screen and it changes whenever a new email comes in. So the, the single biggest practice that I implement is what I call the triage method, which is to set up my inbox with um, those three extra columns, priority, next action, and due date. So I can look at an email and do those four Ds, delete it, deal with it straight away, delegate to someone else, or I can't deal with this now. What is it I have to do? Type that in. Uh, when am I going to do it? I'll do it tomorrow. Uh, and then when I click enter, it drops into space. So I turn my inbox into almost like a dated to-do list. Yeah. And so it looks much cool, calm, collected. I know I know exactly what I need to know uh, is where I need to, it to be for when I need to action it again. And it makes such a difference psychologically just, just looking at it. I know where I'm up to. The only thing I ever don't know is the six or eight or 10 or 20 unread. I've got a hundred. Let me just check this. I'll check right now how many I've got in my inbox <laughs> personally right now. I have 198 in my inbox right now. Yep. Two of them are unread. There's 12 I need to process today. The rest are spread out over the next few days and weeks. Mm. Wow. But I don't have to sift and sort through 198 every time I look at the inbox. I only have to sort yep. through the two new ones. So um, that is so the, single, is- the single biggest difference is setting up that triage view my workshop, my training used to be called Taming the Email Tiger. Once I show people how to set this up, we change the name of the program to Revolutionize Your Inbox because that's what it does. It just it just revolutionizes your working experience in that inbox, yeah. which is where so many people spend so much time of every day. Mm, definitely. So that sort of leads me into my next question, which is are there any challenges that you face when you do this? Uh, well, the biggest challenge for all of us is probably to process email only at specific times and not just do it all the time or some sort of ad hoc fashion. Um, because we need to allocate time to email and be single, um, single tasking, singly focused on it, and then stop looking at email and be single focusing other things, you know, the things that we need to get done. Um, that, that's the biggest challenge is attention management. Yeah. We've got to manage our attention because we cannot sift, sort, prioritise new email and do the work it delivers at the same time. We need to separate those two functions. And, and that's a real challenge is winning yourself away from uh, checking email all the time, which is why one of the things I teach people, if there's work to be done that comes in via email, get it out of the inbox and get it across into the calendar. Because when you're in the inbox, you've got a screen full of things trying to get your attention. When you're in the calendar, there's just one thing at a time. So now you can uh, focus on one thing at a time much more easily in that environment. So control the environment. Yeah, definitely. So that kind of leads me into my next question, which is how often do you usually do this? And sort of like do you make a certain time to do this or is this something that you do every day? Uh, So I use triage process every time I visit the inbox to process new unread emails and I get unread back to zero again every time I visit the mailbox. Mm. Um, in terms of controlling what times of the day, this is one of the hardest behaviours to establish, even for me. The research shows that for most people in most roles, checking email at four planned times a day, not just four random, but four planned times a day, gives you some structure. Most people look at email in an unstructured way with partial attention and are reactive to it. But what we need to do is have a structure to give it full attention and be proactive with it. Um, so four planned times a day gives the best results. I'm happy if I can just get people four times a day, even if they're random, even if they're not planned, at least 
only look at that four times a day. And a lot of people say it makes a big difference. They're not in and out of it all the time. And that's a great step forward um, compared to the anybody can interrupt anybody about anything at any time structure that most people try and work with. Yeah. So how do you think uh, this practice sort of, how do you think it affects your perception of your productivity and your perception of your quality of work? Well, there's two two parts to this actually. Um, the feedback that I get from my people is, is they feel much more in control. They're much calmer, less anxious, more headspace. They've got time for more important stuff. Um, the, the downside is that because we're so used to seeing email as they come in, we wonder about what we're missing when we're not there. But people soon get over it. Once they wean themselves away from being interrupted all the time to just, I talk about three models, check it every half an hour instead of all the time, or check it once an hour or go to four times a day. Once you realise that it, you're not needing to be there all the time as much, once you wean people away from <laughs> yeah. that, you start to have peace of mind and you find you can, you know, you start to deal with that fear. Again, false evidence appearing real. Uh, and I talk to people, turn off the alerts. Because one of the things that bugs you is you might not be in email, but you'll get an alert that gets your attention. Even if you, and it could be an audible one, which is the worst, or it could be a visual, at least you don't see visual if you're not looking at it, but it'll pop up on the screen or it'll be a little envelope in the, in the tray at the bottom. Turn all of them off. You want to be blissfully ignorant of exactly when they arrive because you've scheduled when you're going to do it. Uh, and people, I, I, honestly, that would be the single biggest positive benefit people tell me about over 15 to 17 years. Stuart, turning off those alerts, oh, I've got so much more time because you're not constantly, you see, every time we are interrupted, we stop what we're doing to deal with the interruption. It might only be two seconds or five seconds or 10 seconds. We come back to what we were doing, but now we've got to get up to speed mentally where we left off. Yeah. So we regress and we have to, and if I could show you visually, you'd see this. And so we're constantly task switching. It's not multitasking. We're not doing two things at once. We stop one to look at the interruption, stop the interruption, come back to the task. We, we're task switching and yeah. we lose time every time we switch tasks. Uh, and so we're doing an enormous amount of, um, of work. I do a little multitasking exercise in my workshops, actually. I'll get people oh. with a timer. I'll write, I say, write out the letters A to Z and I put a timer, record how long that took you. Then I go, okay, write out the numbers one to 26, record that. Good, add up the two times. Great. Now we're going to do them together. Do them both at the same time. Multitask them. Letter, number, letter, number. A, one, B, two, C, three. Time yourself. And people take 40, 60, 100, 200, 300% longer to do exactly the same two tasks wow. when they try yeah. to do them together. Mm. And, and how simple is letters and numbers? <laughs> Imagine you've got complex tasks and you're stopping yeah. and starting. And people are really blown away. They're going, wow. And I say to them, were you working harder mentally when you were doing the multitasking version? Like, oh, yeah, I was working hard. I said, you were working harder and your result is better or worse? Mm. And they go, oh. <laughs> And I really show them that email is a great source of driving multitasking and lots of extra work. So you're working harder, but you're spinning, you're like a car spinning your wheels. You're not actually making forward progress. You're doing a yeah. lot of wheel spinning. You think this is exciting. You know? I'm flat out. I'm winning. But... And you're using a lot of energy, but you're not actually getting all that far. Mm. So it's one of the hardest behaviours to change is to get control of when we process email. Yeah. Um, uh, even, even for me, because I've 
got the human traits as well as everyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one is perfect. Um, so do you have any recommendations or uh, practices that you think could be combined with this um, or improve this particular sort of practice? Um, the one of when you're looking at email, you mean? Yeah. So when you're looking at it, yeah. do you think there are any things that you combine? Yep, sure. Can combine with that to make it better, or is there a way just to improve this particularly? Yeah, I think the key here is not so much to think about when am I going to process email, but when am I not going to do email because I'm going to get some other stuff done, mm-hmm. and that's why I say a lot of our workload is delivered through the inbox. And if there's real work, my rule of thumb is once it gets to about 10 or 15 minutes worth of my attention is needed, transfer it into the calendar. And then I can shift away from a working style that's become more and more inbox-based, interruption-driven, reactive and multitasking. We want to shift away from that to one that becomes more and more calendar-based, plan-driven, single-tasking and proactive. Um, So starting to, to use your calendar in conjunction with your inbox and rely on that. The beauty is... As I said, in the calendar, you're looking at one thing at a time. When you're in the inbox, you're looking at stacks of things at a time. Yeah. Um, and the beauty about this, tier is that often we'll finish off the task in the calendar and as a result of finishing the task, we have to reply to that original email or maybe forward it to someone else. Yeah. And I know in Outlook, you can do it inside the calendar. Yeah. I can write that last email in the calendar. I don't have to go back to the mailbox and suddenly get distracted. So we learn... I try and teach people to live in the calendar, just visit the mailbox occasionally instead of the other way around. Most people live in the inbox and just visit the calendar occasionally. And we want to shift that across. Um, the other thing that helps is um, Donna McGeorge's uh, model from her first two hours book, where she talks about the sort of activities that are best done in the first, second, third and fourth two hours. In that first two hours, only the most important emails should be processed. Yep. And I suggest there are emails that didn't arrive this morning they arrived yesterday or previous days that I've allocated time to, to focus on today. In terms of answering new email, that's when we get into what she calls the reactive mode, which is that second two hours, which is that second two hours of the morning. That's when you make yourself available to other people. You're um, uh, being collaborative. The first two hours, you've been very greedy, being very selfish, doing <laughs> matters yeah. both to you, the complex, difficult, uh, important, uh, high-priority KPI-judged work. The second two hours is where you now help others. The third two hours is where she says you're being active, you're keeping the, the, the wheels rolling, your energy levels are low, your mental intensity is low, but you keep doing the, the, the routine, mundane, administrative things that don't take a lot of mental grunt work. And then late afternoon, your energy levels are still um, relatively low, but you're starting to do work that really matters because you're wrapping up today, you're reflecting, and you're preparing for tomorrow so you have a flying start for your first two hours tomorrow or next week or next month. And in fact, I spoke to last time I spoke to Donna, she's starting to think that 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 last two hours, in fact, might even be the most important of the day because it sets you up really well for your first two hours on future days. So a combination of of the calendar uh, and timing when you do certain activities during the day. I remember, if I can tell you a story, an SBS story on um, chemotherapy treatment in Canada. Mm. They said they gave the same treatment to the same patients, but they did it at different times of the day. And they found they could get twice the benefits and five times less negative side effects at different times of the day. It's the same thing with us when we work. If we will try and do certain types of work at certain times of the day, we can be two, three, five times more effective if we can control the time of when we're trying to do certain tasks. 
Definitely. The problem is email sits over the top of everything and interrupts all of it all day long. <laughs> We've got to get yeah. control of. No, definitely. And that brings us nicely into our audience questions. And our first audience question is very much related to this topic of sort of checking emails and making time not to check emails. Um, but this person has asked, what can an individual do to practice checking their emails more often and not leave it neglected for so long and thus miss out on information? Sure. So what can they do to check it more often? Uh, yeah. Very few people would be asking me that question. <laughs> yes, that is not a usual question considering what we've just talked about, but I think it's interesting to sort of yeah, see that other side of the coin. So it's create a structure so that you know when you're going to check email. So it's mm. I'm going to check email for five minutes every half an hour or I'm going to check it for five to ten minutes once an hour or I'm going to check it four times a day. Know in advance when you're going to check it. Yeah. Uh, and change the frequency to suit how appropriate it needs to be. Then you can turn off the alerts and you can have exceptions for certain key messages that come from certain people or about certain topics so that those ones do get through and break your attention. But as I say to people, be very choosy about who you're going to let just pull your string anytime it suits them. Mm. So how do I get to check more often? We'll build it into your structure. Now, one of my clients is in a school and she said, oh, I use the school bell between classes. I use that as my trigger to go and check email. Yeah, wow. So if you can tie it to some sort of external habit that you already have in place, you don't have to create a new habit. Yep. You can just piggyback on another one. And uh, I think James Clear talks about this, habit stacking. Use one habit and tie one or two others to it. Um, and, uh, and and does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah, that definitely makes sense, yeah, in terms of tying it to things and sort of making it like so you have like a trigger to sort of almost to check it and organise those things because, yeah, having that structure and having that organisation, which tends to just be a normal part of your day when you're trying to be productive in other areas of life, structuring in that time and making sure that you have those schedules and adding emails to that should now just be something that is comes naturally. Well, like I say to people, who goes to meetings? Everyone goes, yeah, I go to meetings. Are they in your calendar? <laughs> yeah, they're in my calendar. Do you miss many? No, I don't miss many meetings. I said, what's the definition of a meeting? And there's all sorts of things come up, you know, waste of time. And all sorts. But no, it's a conversation <laughs> uh, with one yep. or more other people. They're important. They go in the calendar. We keep up to date with them. What about seminars, appointments, webinars, things like that? Do they go in the calendar? Oh, yeah, they go in my calendar. Do you keep up with them? You're like, what's the definition? It's a conversation with one or more other people. It's important it goes in my calendar, keep up with them. Okay. Then I ask the question, what is email? What's the definition of email? It's a conversation with one or more other people. But you don't put them in your calendar and you wonder why you're struggling to keep <laughs> up with them. And I love that. meetings are visual and verbal. Your um, teleconferences and things like that are verbal. They may or may not have a visual. They're certainly verbal. Meetings is neither. It's written. It's digital. It's not. It's not verbal. It's not. Which is the harder conversation to have? It's the written digital conversation, and it's the one we don't dedicate time for in our calendar. It's just yeah. a no-brainer when you look at it from that point of view. So, if you want to get control of it, get it in your calendar, just like you would an appointment with a, a colleague or a client. In fact, I'm working with a lady who runs her own medical practice in Brisbane, and she's really struggled to get control of when she looks at emails. She doesn't want to look at it in the morning because she's going to gym breakfast. By the end of the day, she's had enough of this and she's not going to look at email. <laughs> so she's just not yeah. getting it done. And I yeah. said, during the day, you have appointments with your clients. 
uh, saying, I, I reckon you need to cancel one of those time slots and that becomes your email appointment with lots of clients. Treat it as a legitimate appointment. Get it in your calendar. That way yeah. you start to get structure and you start to get control. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think definitely scheduling that time and just making sure that you're actually sort of being productive when you are checking your emails because you can sort of check it sort of willy-nilly but like actually being productive when you are checking it, I'd definitely – Definitely get caught out on that <laughs> myself. Well, um, you and I spend time doing email every day. We just don't control when it is. What yeah. I'm saying is get control. Get, yeah. get control, have some structure, and you'll find it takes a lot less time when it's controlled than the huge amount of time when it's uncontrolled because you do a lot of rework, rereading, mm. reallocating, reprioritizing. The problem, of course, is here that you'll be organized and go, oh, I've got nothing to do. <laughs> I have free time now. What a rarity. Oh, wonderful. So that leads into our second question, uh, which is from somebody who clearly has a lot of emails that they need to deal with. Um, and they've asked, where should I start with organizing hundreds or thousands of emails since I have never done it before? Okay. So they sounds like they want to do a cleanup. Um, so most people would say to you, try and filter out a lot of stuff. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Okay, fine. Sort by who it's from or sort by the subject or whatever and, and try and delete or file them in, in big batches. Yeah. The problem is that's a once-off activity. What I like people to do is teach them 4D. Okay, let's go through your inbox 4D. And if you will do that consistently, you'll notice patterns or trends and then you can speed up. Every time I get that email from Qantas, I'm deleting it. Okay. Now we can set up a rule that will delete them in future, but it will respect, retrospectively go back and delete them or retrospectively go back and move them to a folder. Yeah. Um, so I'm more concerned about getting the decision-making process right and then speeding it up rather than just making decisions once, doing a cleanup, but then finding that everything fills up again because your decision-making process hasn't improved. You've just done mm -hmm. it once. You've done a one-off cleanup. doesn't help. Yeah. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think it's, yeah. And I think that applies to so many different areas of life, whether you're trying to be organized in your emails or organizing your home organization, you know, it's like different from, you know, like doing those daily house chores instead of doing that one big sort of cull and that one big sort of spring clean yes. um, and just learning how to, yeah, have those structures so that you don't get overwhelmed when you finally do have to face the noise. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you, Stuart. So that yeah, brings us a better to the habit at the front end mm. rather than having to do a big cleanup at the back end because yeah. you, you didn't get it right when you, you know, when you first came across it. I say say I taught a, um, a lesson, hard easy, hard easy. I um, coached a whole lot of 13, 14 year old young cricketers. They used to come to me in the afternoon, end of school, summer, 3 30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. What do you think a bunch of 13, 14 year olds are like for concentration? <laughs> the end of the school day. And yeah. I, I say to the boys, hey, listen, listen, listen to me. It'll be hard and we'll go through the drills. Uh, but if you'll, if you'll concentrate and focus, you'll find it easy on Saturday. You'll be able to whack the ball. You'll be able to bowl straight. You'll be able to field cleanly. You take your catches. But if you muck around and take it easy here and goof off, you're going to find it hard on Saturday. You're going to mm. you're going to miss balls you couldn't hit. You're going to bowl all over the place. You're going to drop easy catches. Hard, easy, your choice. If you do it hard up front, it's easy later. But yep. most of us will take the easy way out at the front end and then we find it hard later because we've got to do this big cleanup. Mm, mm, exactly. Uh, 
bless 13-year-olds on, an, on a Friday afternoon. They are definitely the least organized of the human race. Um, I say that as somebody who has a 13-year-old brother who definitely, when he comes home from school, uh, his priority is, is not organization. Um, but that's fine. He's got another couple of years to figure that out. <laughs> well, it's the same thing in life. If we will do it hard early in life and get our qualifications, go to uni and all that, it's easy later. But if we goof off in school, mm. we don't get qualifications, we can't get the jobs, it, life gets hard later. We take it easy in our younger years, older life gets harder. It's exactly. a great principle um, for all sorts of things. Oh, yeah, wonderful. My parents say that to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. So that brings us to the end of our audience questions. So we're going to move into open mic now. So this is essentially where Stuart gets to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. It doesn't have to be related to emails or productivity or anything. You can talk about whatever you like. So I'll hand it over to you, Stuart. How long have we got? Oh, as, as long as you want. Talk about whatever you need to. <laughs> I suppose um, I've learned over the years the two things that really, people probably call them passions, but the two things I find easy to talk about, I love to talk about are, are wine uh, Ooh, and, yes. and, and uh, car rally, um, which is something my father introduced me to and my brothers are involved mm. with as well. But I'll talk about wine today because it's endlessly fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Um, Please. And I had a first career in the wine trade um, working in, in restaurants, retail, wholesale, mm. um, whole, whole range of things. Uh, how do you and, end up in wine? How does that how does that work? Yeah, <laughs> how I do you end up there? Sort of, because my family <laughs> don't come from a wine background, mm. and I realised it was probably from studying French in high school. Ah, um, okay. As soon as you study French, you're going to talk about wine regions and, yep. and the, the impact of wine, and, and that really wine must cheap. have captured my attention. And uh, I went straight out of school. Into the, in fact, before I even left school, I went and worked in vineyards during summer school holidays. Oh wow! I was up at Mount Avoca in um, oh, yeah. the end of year eleven for for that for that period of time, and then year twelve I went straight off to work in the Hunter Valley in um, mm. New South Wales for the Beautiful. harvest period. Yeah, uh, came back, worked uh, retail, then restaurant, then went overseas, came back and worked wholesale. Um, so. Uh, I love all the associations. Uh, Hugh Johnson talks about all the associations with wine are good. It's about the associations are good company, good times, good food. Uh, they're all nice sort of associations. And, and wine is endlessly fascinating. You can drink the same wine for the next five nights and it'll be different each night. Firstly, because yeah, wow. if it's the same bottle, it'll evolve. But even if it's a fresh bottle <laughs> at the time, you are in a different physiological and psychological state every time you, and you'll and you'll see different things and it'll taste different and, and oh, it's an organism that's changing. Yeah. Drink the same wine the same day each year and see how it evolves over a year. What I like to do is drink um, uh, two wines at the same time and contrast and compare. It's one of the greatest ways to learn is to have, say, two pinots alongside each other. You go, wow, you know, you drink this one tonight and another one tomorrow night, you'll, you won't nearly notice the differences, but you drink them alongside each other and it's fascinating. In fact... Um, I use my presenting skills uh, to do uh, an activity I call the wine game at dinner. So this is something that I'll pitch to clients who are going to conferences, preferably off-site. Um, and I'll say, listen, at your conference, your people are going to gather together and have dinner and drink wine at night, aren't they? Yeah, okay, well, why don't I run an activity for you called the wine game at dinner? So what I'll do is um, I'll choose the wines. Nobody knows what they are. They taste them blind, so to speak. They don't know what they are. Yep. And I give them a, a, a little sheet of paper and I'll be the compere with the microphone. I'll say, okay, here's the first wine. Have a look at that. First question is, uh, is that wine white or red? And people <laughs> laugh. Well, it's obviously white. 
And I said, listen, I just wanted to ask that question, firstly, so that some of you have got at least one answer right for the night. Uh, but secondly, because if, that, if you were blindfolded and that wine was, was cool or room temperature or chilled, how would you know? Mm. How would you know? How do you detect whether it's white or red? Second yeah. question, uh, is this wine varietal or generic? Oh, what's generic? Well, generic styles are Riesling, Moselle, Claret, Burgundy, and they're meant to be a certain style. But varietals are wines are named after the variety it's made from. And how could you tell the difference? Well, usually, so I give them a bit of a wine tasting 101. They make a choice on their answer sheet. Third question, okay, uh, it is a varietal wine. Is it Semillon? Is it a Sauvignon Blanc? Or is it a blend of both? Here are the characteristics. What do you think? Answer the question. Then I'll ask them, uh, where do you think it's from, Australia or overseas? If it's Australia, this state, this state or that state? And then my last question is usually, um, it might be a maker, depends on the audience. Do you think the maker's, you know, Cullen, Mosswood or Lewin? Or, or ask alcoholic content. You know, do you think the alcoholic content's high, medium or low? How would you tell? Well, here's a few giveaways, you know, legs on the glass and mouthfeel and so on. And so they answer the question. Uh, and then I get people to um, go a second round with the second one. And this time they answer the questions individually, but they take turns at being a team leader. And now let's coordinate a team answer to this question. So now we're starting to see conversational skills, influencing skills, negotiating skills, leadership skills. It's actually yep. a team building um, <laughs> uh, event by stealth. That People are having fun. a great time, don't even know. Yeah. That doing it. And then at the end of that, I get everyone to stand up and see who got the most questions right, and they get a prize. Oh, uh, nice. And then the last wine is, here's the wine, here's the five questions you need to work together as a team, choose your own team leader, um, work them out, and then at the end of that, the team leader will stand up and talk to everyone else. Well, um, we thought it was a, a, a um, we thought it was a Margaret River Cabernet because Tia, she was at the Margaret River and she reckoned it was a, it tasted like one. Okay, and we thought it was high <laughs> in alcohol, um, and our team name we're the Boozy Rouges, and, and it's a whole lot of fun, and you really see <laughs> personality styles come out yeah. in a leader, particularly when they talk. And I'll run around the table watching the conversation. And sometimes yeah. you can't tell who the team leader is. Other times it's a there's a dominant team leader. And it's so it really shows up personality styles. And of course, a little bit of drink uh, mm. releases the inhibitors. And so you start to see what yeah. people are really like. Interesting. Now the activity actually reduces the amount of wine people drink. It doesn't um, increase consumption. It actually reduces because people are more focused. So it's a responsible event. But I really love the associations. People are having good food, they're having good times. They're having a, a um, directed conversation uh, and a whole lot of fun as well. I remember doing it with Haig's Chocolates, all of the staff at Haig's Chocolates over in Adelaide Ooh, yeah. a few years ago, um, <laughs> the night before I ran a, an email program for them. And it was it was a hoot. You know, some people really great. come out of the shells um, and, and it's just great fun. We could do it with orange juices or beers, but, you know, wines is... is, is, is a little bit more fun. Yeah, bit of fun. No, definitely. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite wine? Do you, if you can, if you can really narrow it down, is there one where you're like, I, if I was stuck on an island, this is what I'd take with me. Uh, at the moment, and it changes with age and <laughs> yeah. of the year, season of life. But at the moment, I would take a um, New Zealand Otago Pinot Noir. Oh, that would be my okay. would be my preferred choice. Interesting. Has New Zealand got any sort of particular? place in your heart or is that just because <laughs> oh that, that's what makes really good affordable pinot um mm. the best pinot in the world uh oh, comes wow. from burgundy in france but the quantities yeah. are extremely small the demand is extremely high so the price is mm. extremely high yeah uh, and um uh otago makes pinot that's very very good because of the, the location the climate the geography oh the interesting Taiwan. yeah but oh, that's a lot so of people say oh Stuart, do you you know what's your favorite wine do you prefer red or white 
And I go, oh, yes. yeah. I go, yes, I do. I prefer it. <laughs> it's like asking me, which, which one's your favourite child? It's really, I love them for different reasons. They're different characters. <laughs> That's you a nice to, answer. You don't have to pick a favourite, you know. Yeah. You can, oh, enjoy them. No. you can enjoy them all. That's beautiful. Yeah. No, I, I would love to learn more about wine. It's something that I'm not particularly familiar with. Just, I don't know, maybe that's a university student thing. You're not exactly privy to trying nice wines. <laughs> it's not exactly a, a, a leisure that you have just yet, but I'll, I'll be sure to, um, I'll be sure to ask you some questions when I do get to that point in life. Sure. That's great. Happy, Wonderful. Happy to go. And it's not that hard because the sense of smell and taste are very closely connected to the memory, so we just need to train mm. them. I can smell that. I don't know what to call it. Somebody who has more experience will say, oh, that's rubbery or smoky. Oh, yes. Yeah. Like, for example, I can tell a cork wine five kilometres away in a blind storm, you know, in my sleep. You know, I'm very sensitive to the characteristics that show up in cork wine. Some people yeah. will happily drink cork wine and not even know. For me, yeah, wow. as soon as there's a smell of, um, uh, for me, it'll be uh, dampness, uh, wet cardboard, wet paper, and it can be... I have heard that, yeah. Yeah, and immediately it takes away my enjoyment of the wine. Yeah. And and I don't enjoy it. Where other people, they're blissfully ignorant, they'll scoff it down. <laughs> most, most uni students, I but bet. The education <laughs> is about learning, because there's only four sensations that are unique to wine, sweet, salty, sour, and bitter. Everything else, we have to say it's like this. It's like a lemon or it's like a passion fruit or it's like a, a vanilla. Or it's, so you learn that, that chemical smell and put a name on it. And then you can come, like one of the things I do with a good friend of mine, my mate Terry, is we haven't done this for a few years, but he'll bring the bottle of wine and I'll drink it not knowing it. I haven't got a clue what he's bought. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> and I will try and guess what it is. And yeah. then once I've made a commitment, he'll ask me, those sort of um, wine options questions I was just telling you about. Okay, mate, you reckon it's imported or Australian? Okay, it's Australian, you were right. Do you reckon it's, you know, Cabernet or Shiraz? Or do you think it's a blend, you know? And, and we'll go through. And uh, often yeah. I'll get the wrong answer, but for the right reason. So when I'm trying <laughs> to taste it blind, I go, hmm, that reminds me of, oh, that's got a chalky feel. I reckon that could be Shiraz from Coonawarra. If it, you know, given that colour and that body, I reckon it's got a little bit of age. And, and so you start to rely on your memory to, but you need to train the memory in the early days. Bit of a detective there. Yeah. <laughs> I love it's it. That's wonderful. Happens with music. Have you sometimes heard a piece of music and it immediately takes you back to something 10 years ago? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Just just today, walking down the streets in Melbourne, you see all the buskers and somebody was playing some classic piece by Mozart and I was like, Got that. Knew what that was. Heard yeah. that a couple of years ago. <laughs> yes. Like I listen to some of the – my favourite artists is, is Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits and some of the, the stuff on their early album takes me straight back to walking the streets in Melbourne actually because I, I worked in a bottle shop in central Melbourne so I did a bit of walking around and, and shopping and, and that, that really balmy summer, late afternoon, early evening, some of that music takes me straight back to when I was 18 or 19 year old. It's just wonderful. And the same Beautiful. thing can happen with smell and memory and wine. Yes, the brain does very interesting things with memories and all those kinds of things, which I love, which we could have a whole other conversation about. Yes, you better ask me another question or you won't won't stop me talking. (laughs) We'll be here all night, may have to get some wine. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Stuart. That brings us to the end of our podcast for today. Uh, For those who want to find out a bit more about you and what you do, uh, where can they go? Uh, Look me up. Um, Stuart Snooks, so stuartsnooks.com.au. 
And then all of the training um, training programs are under email productivity, one word, emailproductivity.com.au. Um, Perfect. But that'd be the two places. LinkedIn, obviously, I'm on LinkedIn. I've got a Facebook page called uh, Outlook Email Support. So, yeah, there's plenty of ways that people can find me. I think if you do a search now, I've been around long enough, I, I come up pretty high in the searches. <laughs> yes, you certainly do. Yeah, so if you just type Stuart Snooks into Google, you should find pretty much everything there. Well, you've got to awesome. spell Stuart correctly, though. Yes. And that's something we didn't do at the top of the program. Mine is, is a very unique um, spelling for Stuart, uh, which is S T E. U A R T. Um, I'll be honest, uh, that's how I that's how I normally spell Stuart. So I was like, how do other people spell Stuart? Well it's usually the two versions of Stuart S T U A R T or S T E W A R T. Oh when okay. I say Stuart looks they go uh, with a U or a W, I go neither. <laughs> and then I spell it very slowly. I was named after the actor Stuart Granger. Ah, oh, so okay. Stuart Grant. But the spelling Stuart came from a book my father was reading about British World War II pilot Douglas Robert Stuart Barter. Uh, he locked ah, his legs okay. pre the Second World War. Oh, he wow. Was a, he was a great pilot, but they wouldn't let him back in. But the RAF became so short of pilots during that Battle of Britain uh, that he came back. And he was one of the great squadron leaders. He had a real British bulldog attacking spirit. He was a, he was a great example. And the book explains that he was named after a Scottish uncle with oh, the, wow. Stuart, the Stuart part. And I've seen Scottish surnames for Stuart spelt that way. Yeah, how so, interesting. Um, so I've actually, you can type in Stuart Snooks all three ways and it'll get to me because I've, I've captured the domains for those. <laughs> uh, but if you're doing a Google search, uh, I think you probably need to spell it correctly to give yourself yeah. the best chance. S-T-E-U-A-R-T. I got all the vowels are in there. Yes, no, definitely. Yeah, who knew there were so many ways to spell it? Interesting. Well, thank you so much for that beautiful brief history of your name. Um, So for those who want to know more, Stuart has listed those below. And for our listeners, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks again, Stuart, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thanks, Stuart. You have been listening to Work in Progress, the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps others find us and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pp.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Tia Hama. Thanks for tuning in.